Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 444 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm CEO of the Australian Writers' Centre and your co host. And I'm here with Alison Tate, also known as A.L. Tate, author of The Wolf's Howl, a Maven and Reeve mystery. How are you, Al? I'm okay, Val. I'm fair to middling, which is not a bad thing. Yes. And I am, that's it. That's all I got, really. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying, right. to think, trying to think of how I can expand on that in some kind of entertaining and informative way. And I've got absolutely not one thing to say. Fair enough. What about you? <laughs> I am, I'm good because, you know, um, restrictions have eased in New South Wales. So I have made restaurant bookings, hair booking. A hair booking. Um, I've gone down to my local cafe, and it's good. I think it's um, it's it's, it's nice. It's nice. It uh, is. I'm look, I have to say, like, I you just kind of like the thing I'm looking forward to the most is actually the hair appointment, and I oh, and it's God. tragic. I'm just like, yeah. how's my life that this is where I'm up to? That's I what know. I'm looking forward to most. But I will say that if you might remember that we. I spoke last week about the fact that I was going to to my friend Tamara Dean's uh, photographic exhibition at oh, the yes. New Southern Highlands Regional mm. Gallery. Um, uh, it's an amazing space. Wow. It's, it's in an old like dairy kind of a situation yeah. that's been repurposed into a um, into a gallery space, and it's just amazing. It's going to be so good. I can't. Um, I, I'm so pleased that you know that a regional area has got something that's that's that amazing, um, and the exhibition was also amazing. Uh, so it was a really good day out, and we went for lunch. Uh, there was lunch nice. involved. There were bubbles involved. There was you know sparkling. Love bubbles. So you know, I have actually left my house, which is quite exciting, and I should mm-hmm. be more excited about that. But um, I'm actually thinking about. Um, I've given myself a deadline to finish my edit and I think that that's probably the best thing Ooh. I could have done for myself yes. because it has actually made me move along a bit. Mm. Um, and I have decided that I probably will do a bit of nano this year to kind really? of get on. Yeah, I think so. Um, just to get on top of a couple of things that I've been wanting to um, been wanting to do. So I don't think I'm going to work on one big manuscript, but I've got two or three smaller manuscripts that I want to to get done. So I'm going to kind of work on that. Have you already started them? No. They're in, they're in your head. They're ideas in your head. They're ideas in my head, but they're not. Mm. Um, they're not fifty thousand word manuscripts. So right, right. they are. You know, like I could technically write. You know, ten thousand of one and. 20,000 of another. Yeah, it's that. Right. Yeah. I just would okay. like to kind of, I, you know, I think the thing that I've found the most difficult about the, the last couple of years, I mean, obviously I've written and published two novels, so let's not get too carried away. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I'm doing fine, thanks. Um, but for me, like normally by this time of the year, I would have had a, another complete manuscript done. I do try mm. to, you know, write at least, uh, I mean, I wrote I wrote The Wolf's Howl mostly towards the end of last year. And mm-hmm. so this year I would have probably completed almost another whole manuscript by now. And I just haven't, you know. I mean, I've been editing one that mm. I wrote, you know, a couple of years ago. But I haven't managed to kind of like spark that new thing. Um, so I'm sort of hoping that if I engage with Nano, at least mm. it will get something out of me by the end of the year. And, and in case like there's any newbies who don't know what nano is oh it's nano is uh, national novel writing month nano rimo um and it's a big worldwide sort of push to write fifty thousand words in 30 days uh all the details from memory are at nanorimo.org mm-hmm. and you can uh sign up and you have to write i think it's 1617 words a day or something um and you, if you do that, you will have 50,000 words by the end of the month. But the thing that's great about it is just that sort of like uh, forward momentum that you get from being part mm. of something with a whole bunch of other people who are yes. also part Around of the something. World. 
around the world. Yeah, and it's free so, and to participate. It's free to participate. There are, you know, huge sort of online communities that grow up around it. Um, there's usually a bunch of people from the So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community that do it. So, you know, if you're in our podcast community on Facebook, which you can join by just finding us at So You Want to Be a Writer, um, there'll be a whole bunch of people in there talking about it and, and sharing things. And I think that they have all also friended each other on the NaNoWriMo website as well. So, you know, you can become part of a group and and um, and push forward with your with your manuscripts, which is kind of what it's all about, really. Yeah, yeah, very exciting. And quite a number of books that are now published got their start in NaNoWriMo, including some of yours. Including some of mine, exactly. I, I think the, the great thing about it is that it's um it's just good for pushing aside that editing and self-doubt and all of those things that you that you know that I've been wandering about in for the last couple of months and um and it's just it's all about moving forward and it's all about putting words on the page and I think the sense of satisfaction that you get from getting to the end of November and having you know as we've discussed at length I never actually one NaNoWriMo. I've never had 50,000 words at the end of the month, but I've always had more words than I started with. And that's just kind of where I'm at at the moment. I just really need more words than I've got right now. Um, and so that's why I do it. Um, you know, it's it's not sort of about getting the t-shirt for me. It's just more about feeding off other people's forward momentum, you know, to help with your own uh, is, for me. That's what it is. Brilliant. All right, let's move on to, there's a blog post on the blog of the Australian Writers Centre. Uh, what's the best writing advice you've ever received? And that's because you you posted that question. Uh, and um, a lot of people jumped in because sometimes you can just learn from that thing that you hear from somebody else. That's a great piece of writing advice. And sometimes it just happens to come to you at the time that you need it, even though you might have heard it before <laughs> and when when it finally connects with you it's like oh right the penny's dropped so there's lots of different um, responses in there that are great which are the some of the ones that you like Al? Well it makes me laugh because um, you know there's a there's a real focus in our community on getting the words down you know like yeah. writing until you get to the end um, as it says in the blog post there's a lot of mention of vomit which suggests <laughs> to me that they've been listening to us. <laughs> <laughs> because you know once you've got your draft you can start to shape it into a you know into a story um you know so Fudzi says you know you can't edit a blank page you have to finish mm. the book Kim says don't get it right just get it written yeah. um I think you know that that to me is is uh, um is is always you know it's good advice I think I think it's about doing that at your pace though like I mean I you know I do mm. NaNoWriMo I do it at my own pace but I do it because it works for me it works for me to kind of just keep pushing forward but other writers will will need to think at length between their between their words and so you know if if it's 200 words a day it's 200 words a day and if they they might yep. be 200 incredibly well thought out words as opposed to the vomit that I um that I get um mm. but it's it's about sort of I, I think you don't really know what your process is until you get that first draft written and you have to keep going forward with it to actually get to the end of it and I I think that that's just you know, it's about building, you know, again, it comes back to that momentum. Um, and I think the other thing is, you know, just uh, showing up regularly. Yes. So uh, I, I don't, you know, I don't think you have to write every day. I'm not someone who who says you must write every day or you are not mm. a writer because I do also believe that so much of the writing process is about that deep thought that Thinking, goes with yes. writing. Um, to me, that's about it. That's what it's about as well. So you may find that um, there you're, you're going to have a couple of days maybe where you write 100 words or whatever and then you're going to have a day of thinking or a day or two or going on a creative date or doing whatever it is mm. that you do, um, which might be just what you need to unlock the 3,000 words that you write, you know, the following yes. Monday. So um, I think, it, again, it's about showing up regularly Um but it doesn't have to necessarily it be every day, yeah. Yes. It's mm. like um, in the episode we did with Tim Eilef, he does not write during the week at all because he's got a busy job and mm. so he would only write on weekends. And mm. I remember back when we did the um, 
the the interview with Nigel Bartlett for his fantastic book King of the Road. He only wrote on Saturday on Sundays. Sundays. I mean, yeah. and he dedicated Sundays. Yep. And hey, Nigel, when's your next book? Want to read it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Don't, don't put pressure. No pressure. <laughs> Um, but you know, Jody Jody Gibson has you know, she, as she says, it's she's a she's an Australian author. She's mm. just had a new book out recently, actually, um, and she talks about the fact that you have to make it a priority. So you've got to schedule. Yeah. You've got to schedule it in. Um, yeah. And if that's three days a week, or if that's every Sunday, you you know, make it a regular appointment, um, yes. a recurring appointment, and make sure that when it turns up in your diary, that you turn up to your computer or your notebook or whatever it is that you do to write and 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 do it. Yeah, yeah. And now that we're potentially back to commuting, even if your commute's only twenty minutes or whatever, use the time. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Use the time. You may yeah. as well. So um, lots of really interesting tips there. Uh, go check it out over at the Writer Centre blog. So that's writercentre.com.au slash blog. Now, we have a competition this week. We have three copies of Echoes of War by Tanya Blanchard. Very exciting because Tanya is one of our amazing Australian Writers' Centre alumna and she writes historical fiction inspired by her family history. So her first novel, uh, and there's an episode that we um, interviewed Tanya on, um, her first novel, the, Go- the Girl from Munich, was a runaway bestseller. It was shortlisted for awards. It was big success. Echoes of War is set in Mussolini's Italy amid great upheaval. In a remote farming village, young and spirited Giulia Talariti longs for something more. While she loves her home and family, she would much rather follow in her nonna's footsteps and pursue her dream of becoming a healer. But as Mussolini's focus shifts to the war in Europe, civil unrest looms. Whispers of war are at every corner and her beloved village, once safe from the fascist agenda of the North, is now in very real danger. Can she find a way to fulfil her dreams or will the echoes of war drown out her voice? Oh, okay, mm. fantastic. We have one of Gosh. we have three copies to get give away, and you could win one of those three copies. Entries close on the twenty fifth of October, so go to writerscentercomau slash win for your chance to win Echoes of War by Tanya Blanchard. That's writerscentercomau slash win. Which brings us to Al. Are you ready for the word of the week? I'm I'm always ready and yet never ready. So, <laughs> <laughs> all right, Tellurian, Tellurian, T E L L U R I A N, Tellurian. Do you know what it is? I don't, Val. I do not know what a Tellurian is or how it may be used. Sounds like it's like for, like someone from Telluride. <laughs> <laughs> but mm. anyway, could be sounds... just someone who tells you stuff all the time. Could be, you know, someone who writes and they don't, they never show. Oh, They're just a Tellurian. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's a good one. I like you that. Like it? I yeah, like that. Okay. So it does sound like an alien as well in a sci-fi novel or a character from Star Trek. And actually, you do find it in some sci-fi novels because it is da 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 an inhabitant of Earth. So we are all Tellurians. What? Yeah, we're all Tellurians. You can also use it as an adjective, for example, to distinguish between Tellurian rocks, rocks from Earth, and moon rocks, rocks from the moon. Tellurian. Where does it it come from? Like how are we all Tellurian? Why are we all Tellurian? I did not research it to that level. Oh, come on, Valerie. (laughs) (laughs) You can't raise something like this and then not have further information for me. I will find out and report back. Please report back. That'll be good. (laughs) All right, Tellurian. And that was the word of the week. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our course, Creative Nonfiction, is your essential guide to crafting a true story into a compelling, page-turning book. Creative nonfiction is one of the most popular genres in publishing right now, and it's clear to see why people love a good story. And if it's based on true events, they're even more invested in it. Perhaps you want to explore true crime, history, or literary journalism. Maybe you have a great idea for a memoir or armchair travel book. 
It doesn't matter what subject you're passionate about, this course provides you with a blueprint on everything you need to know, from how to structure your story and bring its real characters to life, to the kind of research you need to do and the techniques that will drive your narrative to a powerful climax. With over 10 hours of lessons and plenty of practical exercises to complete, you'll discover how to weave your true story into a truly great read. This powerful course removes the guesswork and breaks down the process step-by-step so you can approach your writing project with confidence. And because it's one of our online self-paced courses, you can learn in your own time with 12 months access to all course materials. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash creative nonfiction. That's writerscentre.com.au slash creative nonfiction. All right, so let's move on to our writer in residence this week. We're speaking to Joyce Morgan and her book is The Countess from Kirribilli. She is the former arts editor of the Sydney Morning Herald and she's also the author of the book Martin Sharp, His Life and Times, which was long listed for the 2018 Stella Prize and Journeys on the Silk Road about the discovery of the world's oldest printed book. So I thought it would be really interesting to chat to Joyce because The Countess from Curabilly and the other two books are creative nonfiction. And it is a very different approach when you're writing creative nonfiction because you are limited by the parameters of real life and and reality, right? You can't just make up a plot point here and there. So Mm. um, let's have a chat with Joyce Morgan. Thanks for joining us today, Joyce. It's a great pleasure. Now, this book is jumping out from bookshelves, even though my we're in lockdown at the moment as we're recording this, but my local bookshop still has like, um, you know, serves takeaway coffee. So you can see all the bookshelves and they've put this in pride of place. Um, the Countess from Curabilly. So the, the mysterious and free-spirited literary sensation who beguiled the world. Now, for listeners who aren't familiar who, with who the Countess from Curabilly is. Can you tell us what the book is about? Sure. Look, that's what got me started uh, was I hadn't heard her name until I read a couple of her books. Mm. And then I discovered that the Countess from Curabilly, her name is Elizabeth von Arnhem, and she was born in the 1860s on Curabilly Point, She spent uh, her infancy here and then went to England with her family. She eventually married a Russian, uh, a Prussian count, a German count, and she began writing and she became so successful that she produced more than 20 books in her lifetime. She died in the mid 40s, early 40s, and she was a bestseller. She was an international sensation and Yet, and one of the wittiest women, you know, in print. And yet I hadn't heard of her like many people here until, you know, I just more or less tripped over her books a few years ago and found them hysterically funny. Mm. Now, I am intrigued as well because uh, our head office at the Australian Writers' Centre is in Milsons Point, which is basically metres from Curability. It's effectively Curability. Uh, and I had no idea either. So I'm keen to delve further into this book and your journey into creating and writing this book. But before we get to that, I just want to give listeners some context because you're a former arts editor at the Sydney Morning Herald. And you also published um, your earlier book, which is Journeys on the Silk Road. Now, I just want to talk briefly about your other books because, um, you know, they're they're nonfiction. And and I just would like readers to see the, uh, the journey, really, you know, how you've got to where you are today. So can you just take us back to Journeys on the Silk Road? How did that idea form? And... Why did you want to write it? Sure. Look, that one, uh, Journeys on the Silk Road, was about the discovery of the world's oldest printed book. Now, a lot of people think, oh, that's Gutenberg's Bible. Mm. But in fact, it's not. It's uh, a Buddhist text uh, called the Diamond Sutra. 
and it was found in a Buddhist cave in the Gobi Desert. And I'd been out to those caves some years ago to do a story for the Good Weekend magazine um, when I was with the Sydney Morning Herald. And the story I was doing was about the conservation of there's a lot of Buddhist artwork painted on murals in the caves. But it was only when I was there that I heard this story about how there'd been a hidden library found in one of the caves about 100 years ago, just over 100 years ago. And the great um, discovery there was a scroll that's now in the British Library in London and called known as the Diamond Sutra. And it was taken by a European explorer. He took it back to England. And I was intrigued, um, for, you know, that, you know, I had not known this story. I'd traveled in that part of the world around the Gobi Desert quite a number of times, but I tripped over the story. And I just thought, well, if I don't know this story, chances are a lot of other people do, don't know it either. And um, so I just got more and more fascinated. And then I thought I'll tell the story of its discovery. It allowed me to tell a story about the development of printing, about a ripping yarn about a little known explorer and look at what's happened to that scroll today in, in London. So that was the genesis of, the, of that story. And what would you say were your key points of research, key places for research for such a story like that? There was a couple of key places. One was going back out to that part of the world, which is way out in the west of China. And the explorer I was writing about, his name was Oral Stein, and he was a really hardy soul who'd crossed the, the desert on camel. So as part of that, I wanted to get a feel of what it was like to be in the, the sand dunes. So I hired a, a camel and a camel man to take me out into the sand dunes near where he came across these Buddhist caves. And um, so I camped out there in the tent and I experienced something that the, uh, the explorer Oral Stein never experienced because, in fact, it poured with rain. Mm -hmm. So that was my, one of my key points. The other point was working in the British Library in London, where the explorer Oral Stein had written letters uh, back to his associates. Um, he was Hungarian, but he had become British. So he's very fluent in English. And he wrote mountains of letters back. And so they're all in the British Library. And some of them were in the Bodleian Library in Oxford. So I had a, you know, the, that was my other point of, of study. So I felt very privileged because I went, you know, these are the places I would love to spend time in the libraries of, you know, the, the British Library, the Bodleian Library. I went to the National Library of Wales as well, because during World War II, when a lot of the treasures from the British Museum and the British Library, they were removed for safety to various places. And there was a special hidden tunnel dug underneath the, li the National Library of Wales in Aberystwyth on the coast. And a lot of that, including the Diamond Sutra, were put for safety in this tunnel. Mm. So that was part of the story. So I contacted the library and asked, could somebody take me down into this disused tunnel? So wow. a man with a hard hat took me down and uh, I spent some time just poking around this extraordinary now derelict and graffiti covered tunnel. Wow, what an adventure. <laughs> um, so after after you wrote that Journeys on the Silk Road and the you know the Diamond Sutra, mm -hmm. you wrote something very, very different. Martin Sharp, his life and times. Now um Martin Sharp is it's very specific topic, very specific person, and perhaps you would do a better job describing to listeners who he, you know, who Martin Sharp is and 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 why you decided to write that. Yeah, I I was at the Sydney Morning Herald where, as you said, I was the arts editor, 
And I'd, I'd got to know Martin Sharp, who was a pop artist. Um, he came to prominence in the 60s as both a satirical cartoonist and later a visual artist. And I got to know him uh, in the what was the last 10 years of his life. So from, from the sort of 90, uh, 2000s, early 2000s, I got to know him. And he was living, in, he lived in Sydney. And I went to interview him a few times uh, for the Sydney Morning Herald. And we just sort of established a kind of connection. And the more I learned about him, the more I thought he was uh, a fascinating figure. I'd always admired his art. The, the weird story really with Martin is that I knew his art from when I was a teenager growing up in England. I grew up in Liverpool in the north of England, which was at the height of sort of Beatle Mad era. And I love the Beatles, but I also love Bob Dylan. And then I'd, one day I'd come across in a magazine an image Martin had done of Bob Dylan called Mr. Tambourine Man, which is now probably his most famous image, very psychedelic. It really captured the spirit of the 60s. And I'd actually kept that image and brought it with me when we emigrated to Australia in the late 60s. So that... Yeah. I'd had no idea who'd painted, who'd created it, didn't know his name, let alone that I was, you know, sailing towards where he lived. So it was, his art had always been important to me. And then I just thought the more I got to know him and he talked to me about his days in the 60s in London where he shared a flat with Eric Clapton, mm -hmm. co you know, and designed some of Eric Clapton's album covers, even wrote some lyrics for a song that Clapton recorded, and then, you know, became such a, a prominent pop, pop artist in Australia with um, very collaborative artist with the Yellow House in Sydney and, mm. and beyond that. So I thought, look, you know, he's got a great story to tell. And I, you know, was we were doing, a, I just would go over there and talk to him and record conversations. And um, it was really only after his, he died in about 2014 that I thought seriously about, look, if I'm going to write, a, I'd like to tell his story, but I need to do it now while his contemporaries um, can talk to me. Because mm. like Martin, they were getting older. And I thought this is a story worth telling and um, I need to do it now. So that was how I segued into um, uh, doing the book, the biography of Martin Sharp. Wow. And now we go to Elizabeth von Arden. So you said that you started reading her novels and realised this woman's really clever, really funny. How do you, do you remember how you discovered her novels? Yeah, look, I think probably initially it was through, um, I, I read two of them um, that were both very different. Her fir the first one I read, I think, was Enchanted April, which today is probably her most loved book and best known book. And I, the springboard was, there was a film made, a British film made about, of Enchanted April with Joan Plowright. And it's a very romantic film about four English women escaping, you know, they're either their unhappy husbands or various other situations in England and going off for a month in April in Italy. Um, and kind of, a, it's a story of transformation. And it's very optimistic um, and very, yeah, very positive kind of with, with a message of transformation. From that, I then read a book called Vera that she wrote, which is actually my favorite. I think that's her masterpiece. But this is a very dark Gothic story about an unraveling marriage and about a, a woman, a young woman who marries a much older man who turns in, out to be a domestic tyrant. And although it was written only in the early 20s, in the early 20s, so actually 100 years ago um, this year. It's very contemporary because, it, you know, you look at it and you go, oh, gosh, this is like classic coercive control, this story. So I was intrigued how a woman who'd written the sunny, optimistic Enchanted April had also produced a very dark and gothic book. And, that, and then I went, well, who is she? And I started, you know, looking into that. 
And I was, you know, even more surprised when I then realized that she had been born in Australia. Mm. And at what point did you think, I'm going to write a book? Because <laughs> that's a big commitment. <laughs> it is a big a commitment. Um, I Look, it was it was a few years ago now, and I just thought, God, this is just a story worth telling. And I just became really passionate and quite obsessed. So, you know, I just, you know, you have, sometimes you just have that feeling. You just go, this is the story for me. This is the story I really want to tell. And I was just thinking, you know, the other day, the, you know, it seems a very weird thing to go from Martin Sharp to Elizabeth von Arnhem. And it just occurred to me the odd connection is that they both were satirists. Martin moved away from satire, but Elizabeth von Arnhem was known as a satirist, you know, through her entire career. Um, and women satirists, as we know, are even rare, more rare than male, far more rare. And uh, I thought well, that in a way that's that if you ask me what the thread is, I think that's probably it. And um, so, yeah, once I, I, yeah, it was fairly quick. I just went, yes, this is the story I want to tell. And so at that point then, did you um, pitch the idea and secure a book deal or did you go, you know, throw yourself into research and then secure a book deal after you'd, you know, written a fair chunk of it? Okay, well, the the way I did it was I went back to my publisher at Alan and Unwin, Richard Walsh, mm-hmm. who he'd published the Martin Sharp biography, and he was a contemporary of Martin's. Yeah. He, you know, worked on Oz Magazine, the satirical mag, with and you know founded it together. So after I'd done that, um, Richard and I were very keen to do another book together. I really enjoyed working with him. And I thought for long and hard about what I'd like to write about. And then I went to him uh, once I'd done some preliminary research. I needed to know there was enough material for a story. Yeah. And uh, in, and in, in fact, there was masses of primary material. So I went back to Richard and, and suggested this idea and he just he loved it. Uh, so from then it was you know all systems go and um i wanted to do it by going back to the mountain of diaries and letters that she'd left that elizabeth mm. had left which yeah. were all held in america which is where she died in america um and so they're all held in a library called the huntington on the edge of los angeles so I knew I would have to spend quite a bit of time over there because they're not online, that it's not been digitized. Um, so I had a, several months uh, digging away every day in her archive of letters and journals and um, wow. all, all her material, which was just fantastic. I was uh I was just amazed at how prolific she was. I mean, it was an intimidating mountain, I've got to say. It was an Everest. But there was also, she'd also, part of her archive was also her father's letters and journals. And it was, you know, I could see a real similarity between them. They were rather similar spirits, both very witty. He, of course, never published. He was a, a businessman. He was a shipping merchant. But I could see, you know, where a lot of her wit and um, view of the world, her very quirky view of the world came from. Now, let's just um, get practical about this and go into specifics, if that's okay. You get you go to Huntington Library in America for a few months. <laughs> yes. Um, I guess I have so many questions, but uh, and I'll 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 just re- reel some of them off now, and maybe you can incorporate them in your l- larger answer. But just on a practical level, did you go Airbnb there? <laughs> did you? Um, what did they think of you wanting to 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 spend a couple of months there? Were they, you know, um, really helpful and accommodating? Did they give you a little space for you to hang out every day? Um, and in this mountain of stuff, how did you actually take notes? You know, <laughs> tell tell us all. Okay. Tell tell me everything. Right, I'll tell you everything. Well, <laughs> when I decided 
to go ahead and I got the contract, I thought I need to get over there quickly. Mm. Um, you know, once you've signed a contract, the meter's running, isn't it? Mm. So I went over to Pasadena, as it is, right on the edge of um, Los Angeles. And I did, I, the Huntington Library is a research library and they provide, uh, it, so it's normally only for scholars, um, foreign uh, academics. But, but I also applied for, they have one fellowship a year for an, an independent researcher, you know, a non-academic. Um, and I applied for that fellowship and I was like overjoyed when I got that fellowship. So that allowed me to spend some extra time there. It was a month long fellowship. Mm. So I went over initially um, and I they provided me with a list of places, uh, accommodation places, and they are pretty much like an Airbnb, but they they inspect them all and make sure everything's okay. And I really landed on my feet because I ended up with a sort of granny flat um, with a lovely Iranian Persian couple. Um, and I, I could walk to the Huntington from there. It was, you know, was, that was my exercise every day. It was quite a long walk. Um, and each day I would go to the, the Huntington is set in the most beautiful gardens in a hundred acres of gardens. Oh. Like, can you imagine that on the edge of LA? And they have like all different gardens, you know, the you know, I go, oh, well, I go to lunch today, perhaps the Japanese garden or the Chinese How garden. Lovely. But there's also an Australian garden. And in fact, one day when I was there, they were using it to, it was being used for a Hollywood movie, a Western was being made in it. So there was like old, you know, horse carriages in there. And it's, the gardens are often used as movie sets. The Rose Garden there, it was used for the um, West Wing for the, the scenes in the presidential oh. rose garden. Mm -hmm. So you so I couldn't imagine a more beautiful place to be, you know, working every day. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, I'd go there each day and I'd get her letters. I'd read through them. Um, so, some of them I would, you know, I'd photograph um, because, you know, that, the, the reality is that's quicker than, you know, taking notes, but especially at the pace I write and then I never read my handwriting. Um, and that, you know, is quite acceptable. So I'd take my laptop in each day and, you know, work away. And um, I, so it was a real focus. And there was, a, you know, there was lots of other researchers there and, you know, we kind of had social events together and things. Um, so I, I, in, in the end, I went in two trips. I went in um, for a month in around about April, a couple of years ago. And then I went later on to take up the fellowship later on in the year and round about November, which turned out to be amazingly fortuitous timing because I'd known as soon as got back uh, just around Christmas time. Then, of course, soon after COVID started happening right. mm -hmm. and had I delayed taking up the fellowship which I could have I had about mm. a year to take it up um it would have meant well it would have made the project impossible really mm. and so I was just incredibly fortunate in the timing so nice. for me to be poking around in an archive day day after day is my great is great delight I can't think of anything I'd like better <laughs> Okay, so you have all of these archives, though. I mean, and you describe it as a mountain. How did you make the decision on where to start and the order in which you would do your research? Or did you just go, oh, I'll just read this, read this, read this, read whatever? You know what I mean? Yeah. Look, I, I'm, I went chronologically, you know, start at the beginning right. and work it through, I think was, um, uh, was the way I went. There was a couple of... Um, uh, sections within the big sections within the correspond her letters, which were to her daughter, one of her daughters that she that's the person that she wrote to the most, or the letters that have survived. So I think I might have saved them to do as you know one section, um, I you know discrete section because there was so much there. Um, but yeah, and I, I kind of started basically chronological. So I had come home after the first trip with enough 
material to kind of keep me out of trouble and keep me going until I could get back across to do the the later sections mm-hmm. um so I yeah I did it those that way and then um you know I'd had time to digest them time to mm-hmm. think through you know what more do I need how do I go about this and where else do I need to look and um that was the approach I took so when you're going through it chronologically, did you, is the process um, read and then decide, make a judgment at the time on what you want to harvest and record or let's just harvest and record as much as humanly possible and figure it out later? Um, look, I, I made judgments. Uh, I mean, I'd gathered a lot more material, far more, of course, than you can ever use. Mm. Um and but then when I came to digesting it and writing it I would write say I was writing I don't know a a 10-year period or something and I would go back and then reread that make my notes on what I thought was important because you can't hold it all in your head Um, you have a skeleton but you can't hold mountains or I certainly can't anyway um in my head so I would you know write a discrete section and then go back read you know the next few years that kind of thing um Mm. and work at it that way yeah yeah and so in between the first visit and the second visit to the Huntington um did you start writing or were you wanting to finish your research before you really got into it no, I started writing. I had right. a, quite a, uh, a slab of the book down. And that's a different, like I've changed my process of writing. Whereas with um, the previous book I did about Martin Sharp, the biography, I think I that was an interview-based book. It was a very different type of biography. It wasn't archival. But I did pretty well all the interviews before I started writing Mm-hmm. Um, partly because I was interviewing people. I couldn't interview people chronologically. I could only interview, you know, I would interview, it was a case of who was available at yeah. a particular time. So it might be someone who touched his life in the 60s or someone in the in the 90s. So that wasn't feasible. So I did all the interviews before I started writing with Martin, whereas this one I was in a sense more orderly because I could write it uh sections so yeah I had written um between the two trips across to LA I wrote quite a big slab and then of course there was a lot more to do when I came back and I had questions and you know there was thing gaps that I wanted to fill in and um Mm. so yeah but I I had quite a bit of writing done so when you're in the writing phase as opposed to the research and gathering phase can you describe to us what your typical day would be like, like whether you have a writing routine, whether you have, you know, certain things that you need to do before you start writing, how long you write for, that kind of thing, your typical day? Yeah. Look, I'm a, when I'm in the writing phase, I'm very um, <laughs> very focused and very boring because I have quite a, a rigid routine. Yeah. I, I'm not an early riser. I'm in awe of writers who go, oh, I write two hours before breakfast. Well, I don't. <laughs> if I'm at my computer by ooh, the crack of 10 o'clock, um, <laughs> I'm pretty happy. Um, I'm, I don't get going in the morning. Um, so I, I sit down at 10 o'clock. Um, with my second cu- cup of black coffee and I then start writing and I write until I take a, a, a short break you know at lunchtime for mm-hmm. again that's a bit of a routine a sad little tuna sandwich uh, <laughs> out in the backyard uh, <laughs> and then I go back and I work till about three or three thirty when I either take the dog for a walk or I go and have a swim and um, then in the evening I may read things related to Elizabeth I might have you know reread some her journals or letters in the evening when I'm in the writing phase I I try and keep my headspace just for writing during the day 
Mm. Um, I don't write at night, but I mm. just find I can write till between 10 and 3.30 and then I feel like my brain's gone to porridge and I need to do something else. Mm. So it sounds like you define the day very specifically by those times, so those hours. So when you are in your day, your writing mm-hmm. day, are you aiming for a particular word count or is your routine such that you kind of get the same word count all the time because you're just so used to that routine? No, I look, this is partly the journalist that were former journalist in me, I guess. Yeah. I set a word count and a deadline. So I set myself, I think for this one, it was 600 words a day. Mm-hmm. And I had to do that. Anything above that was cream. Um, so yeah, and that that was what I felt I needed to do to uh, get this, you know, to to meet my own deadline, let alone my publishers. So, and I've I've done that before with Martin Sharp and with the Silk Road book. I need to have um, a deadline and a word count every yes. day. And look, I don't always meet it. There was a few days when I'd go, oh, slipping behind here, um, <laughs> but you know. It's important for me that I do get words on a page every day. Yes. So it, it was 600 words. Is 600 words reflective of what you would have done when you were a journalist in five hours? No. I mean, that, you know, I was a daily journalist for most of my career and you'd often have to write more than that, Um and particularly like I was writing features a lot of the time and uh, art relating to the arts. So I I would probably do more than that. It would really vary. Um, You know, sometimes in journalism, in daily journalism, you might be out interviewing all day, so you're not writing a word. Um, But you would have to be able to, you know, I can remember one time having to turn around I think it was a 1500 word feature in two hours, um, <laughs> which is not how I like to write, but mm. it does, does show you if you're under pressure, yeah, you can do it. It's possible. Yeah. Yes. So when you uh, were deciding what was going to make it in, because you can't, mm. hum- it's not humanly possible to put in everything that you've discovered about Elizabeth, what was your yardstick or what was your, you know, decision making factor or whatever it is yeah. <laughs> um, to determine what you were going to keep in or or chuck out? Look, that, you know, that's always critical, isn't it, what you chuck out. Um, mm. And, I, you know, you can't write every aspect of her life. It's not interesting, you know, what she had for breakfast sort of thing. Mm. Um, so I, I felt, I guess, my, always in my thought is, if what I'm keeping in, does this anecdote or aspect of her life, does this reveal something about her life, her character, her writing? So it was like, is it relevant? That was always the what was in my mind. Um, I did cut quite a lot. Um, I uh, The book is, I think, about 90,000, uh, which, you know, standard uh, length, book really Mm. but I'd actually written which is unusual for me I'd I'd written quite a bit more than that and cut it back usually I kind of I don't have trouble you know getting the uh, things to the length they're expected to be um whereas this one I because her life was so eventful um I had written more than I realized I needed and wanted and and you know you go oh we you know I'm gonna drown my kittens here but I, in the end, I felt that I, I although I took out about 10,000 words, I didn't feel that it really lost anything. Um, I, I thought, look, it's tighter as a result um, and it's more focused. It's like you can't just put something in because, oh, this is interesting. It, mm. It's got to be relevant. Um, so uh, that, was, that was my criteria all the time. Mm. What was the most challenging thing about writing this book? Um, one of the greatest challenge was she was such a mysterious figure, mm-hmm. and uh, she was like shrouded in mystery throughout her life and even after her death. So even basic facts about her had caused confusion. 
Um, she, her, her possible lover, the writer H.G. Wells, mm. had thought that she was born in Ireland, for example, and uh, not Australia. And when I, I ordered, I got a copy of her death certificate, and even the death certificate was wrong. It had her as born in New Zealand. Oh. Um, so there were so many uh, things that had been uh, kind of wrongly recorded mm. or she had fostered a lot of mystery herself. I'm not saying about her birth. I don't think she fostered that. Mm. But um, she 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 was very private and quite prepared to lie to her friends, to her family, even to her publisher about aspects of herself. Um, so you were having to tease a lot of that apart. And um, a lot of myths had grown up about it, even after she died in the 40s. And so, and they get repeated and repeated. So it was part of that was what made it um, tricky. And it was only, you know, by going, partly by going back to a journals and then cross-checking with other sources that you know it, in one way that was basic journalism you know find, mm. find more than one source for the for yes. a particular fact um so that was that was one of the, the the things that made it trickier and what was the most rewarding thing about it gosh there was look there was so much that rewarded me um mm. partly the the astonishing life she she lived. She was a very independent woman, and uh, her books, you know, enabled her to become very wealthy. And she was a countess. In, you know, she married, uh, as I said, a German count and then an English earl. Um, so it was a very unusual life. But on her path, her literary path crossed with so many people. Like her cousin was the New Zealand writer Catherine Mansfield. Mm. Um, she crossed paths with uh, E.M. Forster, who came to tutor her children when he was just a new Cambridge graduate. Um, she mixed, you know, she Virginia Woolf, she encountered so many of the, uh, Bertrand Russell was her brother-in-law. She married his brother uh, disastrously, but she married him. Um, so it, it would, one of the, I now have a big long list of their books that I'm fascinated to make my way through. Um, mm. Some of them I read it, you know, while I was working on the book, but of course I didn't have time to go through all that I would have liked to. So I feel like I've, you know, I've I've met a lot of Elizabeth von Arnim's friends and associates along the way, and um, I'm still very intrigued by by that whole early 20th century kind of milieu, intellectual milieu. Does that mean that your next book is going to be related to that in some way? Um, no, not not necessarily. I mean, um, I, I, I guess I'm not really sure what which way to go right now. Um, right. But it's so it's an era that definitely compels me. Um, but um, I also don't want to repeat uh, myself. Uh, you yeah, know, I've covered. I've worked on this era and I'm fascinated but I found that with each of my books um particularly with the Silk Road that afterwards I was still reading more about um that this era of 19th century very eccentric explorers I you know mm. I, I got compelled with those even after I'd read the book uh, written wow. the book and similarly with this it's just like a a nice little um echo in a way that it, what it says to me is that I never got bored writing the yes. book because I'm still fascinated there's things of more to discover um, yes and good thing you never get got bored because I mean writing a book with that requires this level of research is such a big commitment it's such a chunk of your life isn't it so you 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 certainly want it to be always surprising you did her life always surprise you Oh God, constantly. Like mm. there was one surprise after another with her life. Um, but, you know, surprises like how musical she was. Like she, she studied at the Royal College of Music, you know, so she, she wasn't as though she was uh, bent on becoming a writer. Um, that came much later. Um, so there was those sort of surprises. 
surprises in her personal life that when she got into her 50s and she took what we would call today a toy boy who was Mm -hmm. 30 years younger you know what this is well ahead of her time Mm -hmm. and um uh so there was like one surprise after another with her her life and the whole uh the two you know living through two world wars when she was uh, you know, basically Anglo-German. Um, her children were had been raised in Germany. If, you know, their father was the, the German count. So, you know, two, two world wars kind of to, tore her family apart. Um, so, there were, and how she dealt with it, she was extremely resilient, but, um, you know, went through some terrible, um, uh, sad episodes, but always managed to pick herself up and um, just shoots demonstrated this strength of character, whether she was escaping from an abusive husband, recovering from the death of a daughter, you know, there was one surprise after another. Um, And finally, what uh, would your top three tips be for people who are listening and they would love to be writing their own book one day? Um, uh, I guess, sit down and start working don't yeah. wait really yeah. I kind of think a lot of it is you you can't just sit waiting forever for inspiration um you know of course you've got to have the idea to start with um but you know read widely um just be open to ideas and you know st- strange little things that you uh come across and just you know pursue your passion absolutely you know don't embark on something because you think oh I ought to do this only do it if you're like really passionate and you know I I think when that idea hits you and you can't let it go wonderful well congratulations on the count Countess from Curabilly, the mysterious and free-spirited literary sensation who beguiled the world. Thank you so much for your time today, Joyce. Thank you, Valerie. It's been a great pleasure. All right, there you go, Joyce Morgan, the Countess from Curabilly. I love reading creative nonfiction, don't you, Al? I do. Um, in, fa- in fact, I haven't read one for quite some time, and the one that I have got on my uh, to be red pile, which mm-hmm. I have had there for a long time, is called the Feather Thief, and that's the one Ooh. that I'm. Yes, and look, honestly, I've been. I might have even spoken about this before, um, but it's uh, it's about the natural history heist of the century, and I. No, I don't think I, so. What was yeah, what's it about? Um, one, I'll, I'll read you the blurb. My okay. my husband read it and he loved it, and mm. Book Boy read it and he loved it. Mm. Um, One summer evening in 2009, 20-year-old musical prodigy Edwin Rist broke into the Natural History Museum at Tring, home to one of the largest ornithological collections in the world. Once inside, Rist grabbed as many rare bird specimens as he was able to carry before escaping into the darkness. (laughs) Um, And... The uh, Kirk Wallace Johnson was waist deep in a river in New Mexico when his fly fishing guide first told him about the heist. What would possess a person to steal dead birds and Mm. had Rist paid for his crime? In search of answers, Johnson embarked upon a worldwide investigation, leading him into the fiercely secretive underground community obsessed with the Victorian art of salmon fly tying. Really? So it's about fly fishing and how oh. the bird, how the and the feathers and how they ended up oh in God. yeah. So was Edwin Rist a genius or narcissist, mastermind or pawn? Mm. Wow. Okay. I, look, it's honestly, I don't really understand why I haven't read it yet because it's it's literally been sitting there for a long time, and I'm now actually I'm all inspired to read it again now. Oh, fantastic! That sounds really mm. interesting. I might go check it out. Mm. And, in fact, one of the things I'm very excited to do now that we can, because, you know, my local bookshop, it's no longer local now that I've moved, but it's local enough, uh, has a cafe attached to it. So I am hanging to go to the bookshop, be surrounded by all those books. And, you know, because you just that's just the, the browsing that you can't get 
in the same way online where you can pick mm. up the books and just, just you know, and I always leave with so many books. Well, at least one, but I go there regularly. So, you know, it adds up to heaps. But have my cup of tea and my biscuit and, you know, it's just such a pleasure and I can't wait to be doing that again. Mm. All right. So what are you doing in the coming week? Well, I will be hitting the deadline. Well, I'll be attempting to hit the deadline that I've given for myself with my edit. Mm. And I will be spending my last week at home with children who are remote learning, hopefully. Oh, yeah. um, As they will then be heading back to school next week. Uh, Book Boy will be going for two days to do, to graduate from year 12. Mm. Mm. Um, And then, but your Book Boy Junior will be gone ski for at least six weeks, which is, you know, cool. a little bit exciting. <laughs> bit of a relief. <laughs> you know, a little bit exciting. Um, but, yeah, so I, that's what I'll be doing. Um, I would, you know, have really liked to have been going to do school visits and, you know, yes. doing all that sort of stuff. But we've given up on that for the rest of the year, really, yep. and hopefully we can just reignite all of that next year. Yes, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Um, no, have no doubt. We're, we're going to come back to the new normal. Very yes, exciting. Of course we are. All right, where do we find you online, Al? You'll find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. You'll find me on Twitter at, at Al Tate, A-L-T-A-I-T, and you'll find me on Facebook and Instagram at Alison Tate Writer. And you, Val, where do we find you? You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O on Twitter and Instagram and over at ValerieKoo.com. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writerscentercomau slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentercomau slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more. <laughs>